I wanted to do a program about pending geopolitics of global warming, such as food shortages, mass migration, and even military conflicts, things that are not in the average person's mindset, but nonetheless are very important. Now, Dr. Dyer is a Canadian historian. Uh, he also is a graduate in military and Middle Eastern history from King's College in London. He is a scholar, and he's taught war studies at the Royal Military Academy in the United Kingdom. He's also the author of War, which was the basis of a PBS and BBC television series. And his most recent book is Climate Wars, The Fight for Survival as the World Overheats, and which is being really held by James Lovelock, who we've on this show, and, and Dennis Bushnell, NASA's chief scientist, and others, is a very important work. We got through some issues, but today I want to give more time to get through more. So let us go now to my guest who's standing by and talk with him about some other things that are important to us. He's in London, England today. Nice to have you back with us. Hello, Gary. How are you? Good. Uh, I want to begin by taking a look at what most people never consider, that what's happening with our climate can directly impact the production of food, the distribution of food, the ability to maintain clean uh, water supplies and adequate water supplies for all of our needs, because rarely do you have a situation where someone just has needs for themselves. If you have a city, you have to have it for everyone in the city, plus all the industries. And we have to look at global warming's impact upon water and water patterns on food. So could you take us through food and it's being produced, desertification uh, around the world, especially in China, and what may end up happening between China and Russia as China's glaciers begin to melt, lessening the water coming out of the Himalayas, the fact that they have one of the fastest encroaching desert systems in the world, it's growing at an astronomical level, and also that they're running out of water and, uh, and good room to grow, and yet yeah. they're the largest population now in the world. So could you take us down those paths, please? Okay. Well, first of all, you're now getting dust storms, Middle Eastern-style dust storms in Beijing. I mean, the desert's that close. Now, they're planting trees frantically in the hope of, you know, stopping the encroachment, but there's no sign that it's working so far because trees need water. Water is, is the flip side of food. I mean, basically, you know, what do you need to grow food? You need land, you need water, and you need sunshine. Sunshine's pretty well provided. There is a fair amount of land in the world. It's water that's the key. And the problem is that warming begins to hit the water supply very dramatically in large parts of the world. Um, You know, overall, in a warming world, there's more evaporation because it's hotter, so there's more rain, but it isn't in the same places. And the problem is that the places that have less rain already, like the subtropics, get even less, while the places that already have enough, like the temperate zone, most of the United States, for example, get more, which they didn't need, and which could be destructive if it comes down in torrents, so that the food production gets hit. Rule of thumb, no more than that. It varies from one place to another, obviously, but on a global basis, for every degree Celsius, so say, or a degree and three quarters Fahrenheit, you lose 
10% of global grain production. And there's no slack in the system. We don't have a reserve anymore that's worth talking about. Um, food production, we're still feeding everybody, with the exception of a very few unfortunates. Not well, but on the whole, we're eating better than we did 50 years ago with three times the population. But grain production stopped growing about 10 years ago worldwide. And uh, right now, we have eaten into what used to be a 150-day global grain reserve. What's left over in the bins and the, and the cargo ships from the last harvest when the next one comes in? Big, you know, sort of late late northern, late summer in the northern hemisphere. Used to be 150 days 10 years ago. It's 57 days now. So we're already running and, and making up the, 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 the loss with, you know, eating into the stored grain. We're not losing production to climate change yet, but we're going to. We're going to lose large chunks of production. And that's going to have huge effects. When you, when you talk to the military, almost all of the negative effects on a geopolitical level, military level, that they foresee have to do one way or another with the fact that we're going to run out of food. Now, in China, they really get hit very hard. They have, um, they're not in the, the tropics. In fact, most of China is not even in the subtropics. But... Um, they do have a sort of a triple whammy, uh, which makes them almost uniquely vulnerable. First thing is, the big rivers of southern and central China all come off the Tibetan Plateau, you know, way to the west. And they're fed by glaciers. The water comes out of, um, uh, you know, streams that come, little tributaries that come off the glaciers and keep the Yangtze and the Huanghe and the, you know, the, the rivers that support paddy rice growing in southern and central China, they come off the, the, the Tibetan Plateau, and those glaciers are melting. They're going fast. Chinese Academy of Sciences itself says 7% a year. Okay, 7% a year means they're half gone in 10 years, mostly gone in 20, and then... In the summer, when you need the water, it's not there because all that keeps those rivers full in the summer when it's not raining or snowing up in Tibet is the melting glaciers. So rice growing in southern China is enormously hit, hit enormously hard. Northern China grows wheat. Um, northern China is mostly rain-fed agriculture, but on the northeast monsoon coming in reliably every summer and it's been getting weaker already for 10 or 15 years i mean in fact last summer the chinese government started trying to persuade farmers in north china to stop growing wheat and grow potatoes because they're not as thirsty a crop however you know how do you persuade a billion chinese to eat potatoes that's not their normal diet um, but that is the extent of the fear and then the third you know the triple whammy the third thing is about a third of China's food is grown in these vast river deltas, you know, where the rivers reach the sea and there's just lots of flat land and you're growing a lot of food. They're very low-lying and they all face east. And that's where the cyclones, the hurricanes, so to speak, come roaring in off the Pacific. And with a little bit of sea level rise and, you know, the, a very high tide when the hurricane hits the shore, you can lose those river deltas real fast. Flooding all the way up to Shanghai, which is about 30 miles from the coast.
um, and lose huge amounts of land. And once you get the salt water soaking into it, it's damaged even when the water goes back into the sea. Put all that together, and there was a study done. It's actually a contract from the World Bank. The World Bank is trying to figure out how much food everybody would lose at 2 degrees Celsius, say 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter average global temperature. So they, they gave contracts to, to think tanks in a lot of countries. The one in Beijing that did it figured out that, or said that they reckoned that at 2 degrees Celsius, 3.5 Fahrenheit, hotter average global temperature, which you can expect to see at the current rate in about 30 years, China would lose 38% of its food. Well, you know, that's revolution and civil war. No government survives that. <laughs> that's, that's people starving in the streets. So, and, and, you know, when that happens in China, okay, they've got a lot of money, maybe they could just buy food, but no, because it's happening in a lot of other places around these subtropics and even further north at the same time. You know, Brazil's running out of food, Mexico, the farms are dried up and blown away, blown away. the whole Mediterranean is seeing crop failure after crop failure because it's all in the subtropics. Australia, Southern Africa, these places are all losing production. There's a global grain shortage. You can't buy your way out of trouble. That is why the Chinese government is really scared about climate change, more by far than the U.S. government or even European governments. They're terrified. They are trying to make some effort now, but for 25 years they just were focused principally upon their economic growth at anywhere from 7 to 10% per year. Uh, and also, they did not curtail, they actually encouraged a higher standard of living amongst the middle and upper middle class educated group that wanted to emulate the United States. They wanted the cars and the, and the, the, the meat and the diet and the apartments. So they built these cities. Now, um, I can't are, get indignant about any of that. They're just doing what we do. I, I understand. I'm not criticizing them for doing it. It's just a matter of statement that if you look at the mess we have made based upon using 25% of the world's resources with now only 3%, it was 5% of the world's population, um, other countries are doing the same. Everybody wants to be like America, but we can't all do this. I mean, there's a finite amount of resources. Now, That's right. I mean, you need about three planets to support, or four planets to support everybody to U.S. scale of consumption. So if we look at China, based upon what you've just shared, because mm -hmm. right now, if we believe the media, we would think that China is the greatest future threat to the United States and likely to replace U.S. as, as the dominant economic power. However, Looking at the future geopolitics, there's evidence that Russia might be in a better situated place. It has oil and gas reserves. It's up near the Arctic. It, it has uh, geological surveys showing 90 billion barrels of oil. On the other hand, China faces depletion of its aquifers and its food yeah. belt, rapid desertification in its western provinces, loss of the Himalayan glacier flow, and yet China and Russia share a border a large yep. border. So where do you see Russia and China in terms of global dominance and in terms of stability uh, in the next, let's say, 10 to 40 years? 10 to 40 years, I think there won't be any change in 10. But take me up to 20 or 25, and I think okay, 
Russia comes out of this much better than China. Russia's not in the subtropics. It's not, you know, it's pretty far north, most of it, although it's got a lot of good agricultural land in sort of western Russia, the Russia we're familiar with. But it's also got lots of good agricultural land in Siberia, a lot of which is not now used because it's too cold. There's not a, you know, you need about 110 frost-free days to get a wheat crop off the land, you know, and if there's a frost anywhere in that 110 days, buy wheat, goodbye wheat. Now, you know, the thing that global warming does is it extends the amount of Russia over which you've got that 110 frost-free days. And the land is there, so actually Russian food production probably actually increases very significantly. They become a very major exporter of food as the climate warms. The U.S., on the other hand, loses... Okay. It's a good deal further south, closer that... to the southern. In fact, in the subtropics. Um, so you said Russia coming up on the food front, the U.S. going down, China collapsing. You go to Moscow, which I did not too long ago, and the Russians are absolutely paranoid about the Chinese because they can see this coming. I'm talking about Russian specialists, Russian defense people, things like that. It's not. It's not the talk of the town in the in the bars, you know, but. When you go to uh, the people who are supposed to know, they're all focused on, well, on two things. Will there be a conflict with the West when we start drilling for oil in the Arctic Ocean because the ice cover is going away? It's going to be ice-free in five or ten years, at least in the summer. And there are seabed boundaries between Russia and its neighbors where they think the oil is that are in dispute. So will we end up with a conflict with the West, particularly Russia and Norway, have a, a boundary in the sea, which is right where the oil is supposed to be, but nobody agrees where the boundary is. And NATO, you know, Norway is a NATO member. Are we going to end up in a confrontation with NATO over that, which is, you know, kind of a valuable resource, oil and gas? The other thing, a little bit longer term, is what happens when China collapses? And you have got huge numbers of Chinese refugees desperately heading for somewhere that there might be food, and you know where that is. It's north. It's Russia. Um, Not just China, by the way. They've also got borders with Iran and Turkey, which are equally hard hit by, you know, desertification, by, by the loss of food production, all the rest of it. They're in the subtropics. So, you know, there's a real fear about the southern border in the longer run. But Russia ends up with enough food to feed itself and huge influence in the world there. And by then you can expect them to be back on their their feet economically as well. They're getting there, finally. Um, they're going to be a much bigger player. And I think, frankly, China, because of its internal troubles, will be a much smaller player than it expects to be in 25 or 30 years' time. Yeah, I I think that we have to be realistic. What happens when 500 million people are starving, don't have adequate food? How civil will they be? What will they do to express that concern anger? And I believe that China uh, has best, at best, slow down its economic engine, start looking at its own future survival, or they're going to come up one day and see a French Revolution on their doors. Let's That's very likely, I think. But on the other hand, just put yourself in the shoes of the Chinese government. It's not an elected government. It's not. It's not even a very popular government. The only 
Tiananmen Square was 20 years ago, 21 years ago, and really that was the end of popular support for communist rule in China. What keeps that government in power and keeps the population relatively quiet is that every year the living standard goes up. So the Chinese government, in interest of its own survival, cannot slow down significantly because its only credibility is delivering the economic goods, you know, the, the goose that lays the golden eggs. Um, so from a political point of view, don't expect that to happen. But there's also a broader thing, which is don't expect it to happen from a psychological point of view. If you're Chinese, you have a view of history that's very different from that of the West. The history is, until about 500 years ago, this was the most powerful and technologically the most advanced country in the world. Then we got ambushed by the damn Europeans who got the jump on us with the industrial. We were almost colonized ourselves. Everyone around us was colonized. The Russians took away the whole north, and we've been living in poverty and disrespected over centuries. I mean, there was foreign troops in Beijing 100 and 110 years ago, Boxer Rebellion, all that sort of stuff. But even since then, we've been disrespected also. Now we're coming back, and we're going to be respected, and we are not going to play second fiddle, and we're not going to stay poor in the general interest. I don't see the U.S. state going poor in the general interest. So the Chinese perspective on this is we don't make sacrifices other people aren't willing to make, even if the boat goes down and carries everybody, including us, down with it. It's, it's a very human, not entirely rational, but a very human position to find people taking. The reason that, that, the, that, Jen, that in Copenhagen uh, last December was such a train wreck, didn't get anywhere, um, basically was that the Chinese weren't going to make any promises about emissions until the U.S. did, you know? And I think Obama actually thought he could go to Copenhagen with that promise in hand because he could get it through Congress. Well, it didn't happen, did it? I mean, not only did it happen in time for December, did it not happen in time for December, so he went empty-handed to Copenhagen and the Chinese said, well, we're not doing anything either. Um, it's now clear it's not going to happen in this administration. I mean, the Senate's not going to pass that legislation. Rather unambitious, though it is. Okay, that brings me to two more points that connect. Please give us your look at where the likely food shortages will occur in the United States in the relatively near future that we should be concerned about, especially in the California Central Valley yeah. uh, and, and the high plains of the Midwest. Yes. Um, because that's where most of the food in the United States, certainly the grains and vegetables, are grown. Yeah. And I've been out there. I was recently out there. I was recently in the San Joaquin Valley. I was in the fields. I want your perspective on this because when I'm there talking with farmers and I'm seeing them say that they don't have water here and they can't grow there and thousand acres not being grown because the guy just reaches down, picks up sand or sandy soil and says, this is what we've got if we don't have... Uh, we've over-farmed it, we don't have good water management, and no one seems to be doing anything about it. Now, that's that's at the ground level, out of the news, away from the think tanks and the experts. But there's two realities, the reality on the ground and the reality from a more, uh, a more measured perspective. Tell us about food in the United States, because I also have just finished um, 
my primary work on a documentary called The uh, the Twelve Tipping Points. And by the way, I stood outside of Columbia University Graduate School in Barnard and asked over 100 graduate students, professors, how many of the Twelve Tipping Points could you name? Well, first... 90% 90% didn't even know there were such things called tipping points, and nobody could get more than three, and only one person got three. That's at a graduate school, a prestigious Ivy League graduate school, Columbia University and Barnard College. Now, I'm looking at 16 states in the United States that do not have now regular water in order to supply them with all their needs 12 months a year, that there are going to be worse water shortages in the future. And these are some of the most popular and populated states and cities, like Phoenix. It's going to be a ghost town. And yet you have more people going to Phoenix as if no one's letting them know or they're choosing not to find out. You're not going to be able to live there. And, And yet this is at a time when they open up the largest water theme park in the United States in Phoenix. In Phoenix. It's just insane. Your, your thoughts on this, please. I mean, it's really cool. Um, look, uh, what happens in the United States is that some areas get very hard hit. Other areas are probably okay. Uh, basically, uh, the the high plains, the, 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 the agricultural area west of the Mississippi River, uh, gets hit very hard. The, the forecasts are for having rainfall or, or somewhere around there. And alas, this is going to happen at about the same time that the, the huge Ogallala Aquifer, which underlies that whole area, Kansas. runs out of water, or at least large parts of it do. So um, you're going to lose a lot of the farming, maybe most of the farming, west of the Mississippi and the High Plains. Actually, if you just get in a plane and fly east from Denver, you can see what's happening because they pump the aquifer dry, and you've got all these brown circles on the ground where there used to be, you know, center pivot irrigation farmers are growing crops. There's a little bit further east from Denver. It's going. Um, the Central Valley of California, as you say, um, they're short of water now. The problem is partly poor water management, but it will be worse than that um, because what really sustains the Central Valley, and that's somewhere around a third of all U.S. fruit and vegetables is grown in the Central Valley. Um, And that is sustained. It's a relatively dry area. It was not obvious farmland, and then the big irrigation schemes went in, and what they depend on is the fact that the snow builds up in the Sierra Nevada mountains every winter, and then it melts in the spring and the summer, and it provides a constant flow of water out of the mountains when you need it. Well, let it be two degrees Celsius, three and a half degrees Fahrenheit warmer, and what happens is that that snow doesn't snow it falls as rain in the winter it runs off straight away and there's nothing to melt in the summer so no water in the rivers in the summer and goodbye central valley stephen chu the energy secretary who's a californian himself um said something which really cabinet members should not say he said basically i don't see how you sustain agriculture in california or the cities you know you guys there's 35 million people living there, and only the northern half of the state has enough water for anybody to, to survive off of, northern, of, of you know, local resources. If the big Southern California and southwestern cities, Phoenix and places like that, are to survive, they will do so by importing water, probably from Canada. There's, there is no other long-term. So there's no, there's no water in the river systems there they can access. 
They're using everything already. The population continues to grow. There's people in the southwest, southwestern United States living in places that there is no local water to support them. You realize it's that's also including. You, you realize we're also talking about uh, eastern Alabama, yep. jo- Georgia. Yeah. Uh, we're also talking about uh, North uh, South Carolina. Uh, yeah. Those are going to be hit, and northern and central Florida. Absolutely. I mean, they're going to get hit several ways. I mean, uh, Alabama and Georgia are actually suffering periodic droughts already, that unlike anything they've had in the past, um, because they are technically in the subtropics. Yeah. Which is where the rain fails. And tech, um, Texas, I mean, moderated greatly by the fact that you got the Gulf. Uh, the Mexico to the south and the Atlantic Ocean to the east, which sort of helps because it's sort of local rainfall. Um, but, you know, Atlanta was actually rationing water about a year ago. Um, now, what happens in addition, of course, have um, huge exposure to storms, hurricanes and other storms. I was in Miami last week, actually, and I was talking to a guy who works for... Um, uh, Dade County, and then, and basically, he said, um, "Look, you know, we've we've got a little bit of protection for the coast, but we're doing nothing serious. That's an east face facing coast. It none of southern the southern half of Florida is more than ten feet above water, right? And uh, and now we have the probability of sea level rise, maybe you know, maybe just a foot or so." In the next 20, 30 years, probably no more than the, the estimates now are running up to four or five feet this century. Okay, so give us a foot and a half, two feet. But, you know, if that hurricane hits that coast at the wrong time, which is when it's high tide and uh, pushes that water inland, it's goodbye Miami, goodbye Fort Lauderdale, goodbye Palm Beach. And uh, that land is permanently ruined for agriculture. And a lot of people are on the upper floor. I mean, it's, less, it's, it's New Orleans times 10. Well, the only, um, the only you know, good Katrina the, times 10. Well, not, uh, so what are they doing about it? And the answer is nothing. Not much. And nothing. I, I, I was in the Netherlands recently where they say it faced an even more serious problem. 30% of the country is below sea level behind its dikes. There, they are spending $2 billion, $3 billion a year on what they call beach enrichment, um, which is to say they're, you know, dredging sand up from way offshore and they're putting it off, you know, between the dikes and the sea to make sure that no big waves hit those dikes and break through. There aren't dikes in Florida and attempt at, at beach enrichment enhancement um, to, you know, sort of stop the worst effects of storms coming in off the ocean. It's And, you know, you can take it all the way up the East Coast. I mean, there are three or four big bays, like Chesapeake Bay, which basically are wide at the mouth, face more or less southeast, and then narrow as they get to the top, and you get to Philadelphia or Baltimore or 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 Washington, right? And again, uh, you know, if this was the Netherlands we were talking about, not the United States, they'd be building dams across, or dikes across the mouth of Chesapeake Bay right now, and enhancing beaches out out beyond that to give it credit protection. You know, a lock for ships to go through. Um, they're not doing, not doing any of that stuff. So storms will come roaring in off the Atlantic, 
the sea level's a bit higher, it's at the wrong time, high tide, downtown Washington's underwater. Manhattan's underwater. Hmm. Nothing has okay. been done. Final, final uh, issue I'm concerned with. Yesterday on Fox, they had a uh, former director of the CIA give his personal opinion that war with Iran was inevitable because of how Iran's trying to play the deterrent role. Now, I would like for you to give us your best um, guesstimate of what the likely outcome of that war would be and how it would impact the average American, how they're going to lead up to that war, which is already starting, uh, much like they did with the weapons of mass destru- uh, destruction hidden in Iraq and all the statements they were making, getting all their generals and, and people yeah. on television. I can see it now happening. What's the likely outcome if we have this war with Iran? Well, I mean, it's, it's the old saying, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Shame on me. Here we go again. Same propaganda, absolutely the same format. You know, they're monsters, they're coming to get us, they're going to have weapons of mass destruction, we must preempt, we must invade. I can tell you one thing. Nobody, shamefully, except one Marine general, resigned from the Pentagon over the decision to invade Iraq. And possibly the reason is that although invading Iraq was stupid and illegal and bound to end in tears, um, it was never going to be a military defeat for the United States. I mean, you know, Iraq was broken already. Its army had been destroyed in the first Gulf War in the 90s, never replaced and rebuilt. This is a walkover militarily, you know, although, as they failed to foresee, the next six years of guerrilla war is not going to be fun. In the case of Iran, it's different. Iraq was 30 million people, busted flat, no armed forces left, and a relatively easy country to invade. It's all flat at least hit the, the far north, and you know freeways running up there. Why not? Iran is 80 million people, and it's mostly mountains, and its armed forces aren't busted flat. And it is simply inconceivable that the U.S. Army could come up with the kind with the numbers of troops that would be required for the occupation of any significant part of Iran. And the general staff know that the general staff. Uh, I should say the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which which is what Americans call them, but it's the same traditional general staff function. Um, The Joint Chiefs of Staff have war-gamed wars against Iran since the early 90s, and they have never managed to make the game end in a U.S. victory. It's just not on. Because if you can't invade the place, okay, you bomb it, you know, which really annoys willing to fight for their country, even if they don't like the regime, but you can't invade it. And what can they do back to you? And the answer is they can shut down the whole Gulf. All they have to do is to, and they've got the weapons, they've got these what they call sea-skimming missiles, you know, subsonic or supersonic, fly 10, 20 feet above the water, ship-killing missiles. Um, You can mount them on the back of a truck, drive them down any dirt track to the coast, and there's about a thousand miles of coastline there and fire them at the tankers going past which are you know the size the broad as the side of a barn it's very hard to miss them and there's very few countermeasures that you can usefully use unless you actually happen to have 
you know, an Aegis missile cruiser right next to that particular tanker. Okay, so five tankers, ten tankers sunk. What happens? Insurance rates for tankers going to the up to, you know, like 15% of the entire value of the ship and cargo. Nobody's sending tankers into the Gulf anymore. And that's all Iran has to do. And, you know, after four or five weeks of that, with no oil coming out of Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, or Iran, because they'll stop their exports, of course, the world basically, you know, shudders to a halt industrially, and the pressure on the U.S. government, both domestic and foreign, to stop this nonsense becomes absolutely impossible to withstand. And, the, you know, we find some way to save American face and get them out of this mess. But um, that's the way the war ends. That's the way it ends every time that the Pentagon war games it. But what, so, what happens if you have Israel that it unilaterally decides in its own interest, right well, or wrong, Israel would never to do attack it. Iran unless it assumed it could drag the United States into the war. What would be the point? I mean, they, they, what, what Israel really wants is regime change. Remember that phrase? Yes. Yeah. What, what Israel wants is regime change in Iran. Now, you have to be pretty ignorant about Iran to imagine that attacking it from outside will bring about regime change. But then there's lots of people in Israel who are pretty ignorant about Iran or who are so ideologically programmed that whatever knowledge they have, they're capable of ignoring. Um, and uh, so Israel would love to see the Iranian regime overthrown. Israel has a very limited capability to attack Iran from the air itself, enough to be a nuisance. But it would not do it if it didn't count on being able to drag the U.S. into the war. Um, so, you know, it's not just Israel, it's the U.S. Okay. Or, you know, does this tail go on wagging the dog? I don't know, but it's been pretty successful for a long time. Well, let's just see what would happen to all those neocons who are all over Washington and the think tanks if there was a war, and they're high-fying, boy, we did this to them, and then suddenly that scenario outline comes about, and then the oil stops coming out of the Gulf, and then the insurgencies or the... Uh, the uh, marauders from Iran, of which there are a lot, over one million men under arms, and they're trained in guerrilla warfare. They're not yeah. going to go out and fight a, a conventional war. They start to go into Saudi Arabia to sabotage their oil tanks or oil refineries. They could play a big mess out there. And then what do you think is going to happen to our stock market? What do you think is going to happen to the price of a flight on an airplane, a, 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 to drive a car to power grids that wouldn't have the uh, the oil? All the things that we rely upon every day, um, what's going to happen to that? And then who's going to hold any of these people accountable for having done the same thing twice to us? Well, uh, that's how I started, wasn't it? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Yeah. If we allow ourselves to be suckered by this stuff again, our own worst enemies, and we deserve everything that happens to us. And if you if you didn't like the recession we're just coming out of, you really won't like what happens as a consequence of an Iran and U.S. war. Well, I thank you very much for your good work, and especially the new uh, book that you have out, which gives us a real insight, Climate Wars, The Fight for Survival as the World Overheats, your previous book on war. Uh, Gwen Dyer, thank you very much, and I look forward to our next conversation. I do too, Gary.